0: The sermon text for today is from the book of 2 Samuel, beginning with chapter 11, verse 1. Listen as I read God's word. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 11. David and Bathsheba. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, "The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing." 2 Samuel verses 11, chapter 11, verses 14 through 17. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Second Samuel 11, verses 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as uh, lead pastor here. And as we come to uh, this passage, I'd like to invite you to bow with me for a word of prayer. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquities. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you that you are our hiding place. We thank you that you protect us from trouble and that you surround us with songs of deliverance. And Lord, today we thank you that you are a God who hears us when we confess and you are a God who forgives. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that has given to us. And we pray that you would continue to mold us into a people who are quick to confess and who delight in your forgiveness. As we look at this passage today, give us eyes to see, Lord, what's here. Give us hearts to understand, and we ask that by your spirit that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, that you would bring confrontation where confrontation is needed where we need encouragement, where we need hope, where we need release from burdens. Lord, we pray that you would bring that. Thank you, Lord, that your good news, your gospel, is able to meet us in every kind of situation. And we pray for each person who is here today who comes from a different place this week, that you would meet each of us here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in a series of messages titled The Mothers of Jesus, and what we're doing is looking at the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And as we've been saying, there's five women who are a part of this genealogy, which was somewhat unusual to have women in one of these family trees. And so uh, the point of that is to draw our attention to the stories of these women. And so we've been looking at them together over these last number of weeks, and we've seen the story of Tamar and the story of Rahab, and the story of Ruth. And here today we come to the story of Bathsheba. And I'll just be honest with you, this, this one, as I've been studying for this, this feels different to me in some ways than the rest. Uh, and I think part of the reason why is because Bathsheba gets sucked into the lowest part of David's life. Out of no doing of her own, she gets caught up in the whirlwind of David's selfishness and his sexual desire, and she gets burned by it in the worst kind of way. And if you know the story of David from the Bible, if you're familiar with that, you know that David's life uh, experiences the highest of highs. David is, as a young boy, as a teenage boy, is the one who stands out in front of Goliath and destroys the enemies. Of God's people and brings victory for the people that they didn't fight for. David experiences that he's the one who God makes a covenant promise, a covenant relationship with. There's not many people in the Bible that God makes a covenant with personally, and David is one of those people. And you look at his life and you see that he was called a man after God's own heart. You see that he was Anointed by God to be king over the people, and his life experienced some of the highest of highs. And here in this passage, in Second Samuel 11, we see the lowest point of David's life. The lowest point, at least that's recorded for us, is found in this chapter, in these moments. And what's so heartbreaking about this is that Bathsheba gets brought into this situation through no doing of her own. And that's just it, it can feel unfair just feels heavier in some ways than the other uh, women's lives we've been looking at. And yet, as we look at this passage today, what I'm convinced of is that there's hope in this. There's plenty of hope and grace to go around, even in a story like this. And so let's look at the passage together. And as we look at 2 Samuel 11, we're going to just sort of organize this message around four words that I think really do a good job of encapsulating uh, the essence of what this story communicates to us. And those four words are adultery, cover-up, judgment, and grace. So let's look first at adultery. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we're told the setting during which all these events take place. Verse 1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, This was after the rainy winter season, before the busyness of the harvest season. There was this little window of a couple months where kings would go out and do war with one another. And this is the time when they go out to war. David sends Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, the king was the highest commander over the military. And as so, the king should have been on the battlefield with his troops, which is why it says the time when kings go off to war. David should have been out there with his troops, but his troops are out there, and what he's doing is he's home killing time. Listen to verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So he lays down and takes an afternoon nap. He catches a little siesta And then he wakes up and he sort of, you know, stretches it out and rubs the sleep out of his eyes and then goes up on the roof and begins pacing back and forth because he's bored and doesn't have anything to do. So while David's troops are out risking their life for him and for the nation of Israel, David is home, killing time. And we see that he is up on the roof and he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So just notice the the change in language. So the text begins talking about Bathsheba in sort of a nondescript generic. It calls her a woman, twice. And then the messenger comes back, and the messenger communicates to David, no, she's not just a woman. She has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. Also, she's someone's daughter. She's the daughter of Eliam. Also, she's someone's wife. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so the message at that point should have been clear to David. She does not belong to you. You have no claim over her. You cannot do with her or to her whatever you want. She does not belong to you. But instead of hearing her name and feeling deterred by that, David feels the opposite that solidifies in David's mind that he is indeed going to take her and sleep with her. And we know that because if you do uh, the, the work to see it, we know that David knew who Uriah was. Later in the book of 2 Samuel, when, when the author is sort of uh, summarizing David's life, he gives this list of these men that are called the mighty men of David, David's mighty men. And this was a hand-picked group of elite military soldiers that David himself chose to be a part of this sort of special SEAL Team 6, as it were. And you want to know who's a part of that special group of elite soldiers who was chosen by David? Uriah the Hittite. So what David knows when he hears that she's married to Uriah the Hittite, what he knows is, oh, her husband is off at war. There's an opportunity for me here to do what I want to do with Bathsheba, to take her and to sleep with her, and I can get away with it because her husband's not around. So this is exactly what David does. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. David, when he heard her name, he should have, he should have come to his senses. He should have thought to himself, well, what, what in the world am I doing here? What was I just about to do? (laughs) But that's not what happens at all. He takes her and he sleeps with her. And this is what David did. He saw, he desired, and he took. Does that pattern sound familiar to you at all? Where have we seen that in Scripture? This is Genesis chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve all over again, they saw that the fruit was beautiful. They desired it, they took it, and they ate it. And so if we're reading carefully, what we see here is that the sin that David commits here is just a repackaging of that first sin that came in the garden. He saw, he desired, he took. It's different people, it's a different place, it's different characters, it's a different situation, and yet what David does here is he just retakes and repackages that same destructive, awful, poisonous sin in the garden, and he expresses it in a fresh way here. He saw, he desired, and he took. Now, there's something of a warning in this passage for us, just as sort of a little brief aside here for a moment. There's a warning in this passage for us, because David, as we sort of talked a little bit about earlier, is someone, as you're reading the story of David in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, you would never think that David is capable of this. David is the man after God's own heart. David is the one who is a man of integrity, who refused to lay a hand on King Saul, who was the anointed king at the time. He refused to hurt him. He's a person of integrity, he's a person of character. We see all this wonderful stuff about David, and nobody would have ever thought, if you were just reading the story from 1 Samuel all the way till here, reading chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is like being slapped in the face, because you never expected someone like David to be capable of something like this. And that's precisely the point, is that there is no one for whom it's true that something like this is not possible. David here lives with the incredible capacity for evil. It's a shocking capacity for evil that lives inside of him. And what the Bible says is that if we look at David and we look down upon him and say, boy, I'm glad that, you know, if I was there, I would have done it different. If we have that attitude towards David, we're self-deceived because the same poison of sin that affected David's heart that led David to do these things is the same poison of sin that lives inside of every single one of us. And apart from the grace of God to restrain that in our lives, we are all capable of shipwrecking our lives in a proportion like David is here. And so there's a warning for us to be aware that we have inside of us the same twisted capacity that David exhibits here in this passage. So the first part of the text we see here is we see adultery. The second word that we can use to summarize this passage is cover-up. We're told in verse 5, Bathsheba conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So she sends word to David that she's pregnant, and then he, of course, begins enacting a somewhat elaborate plan to try and figure out a way to cover this whole thing over. So the first step in his plan is he calls her husband home from the battlefield and says, hey, Uriah, you know, after this uh, somewhat probably awkward small talk where he calls him home and he's like, hey, how's the military going? Hey, how's Joab? How's, how's the fighting going? And then he's like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, go home and wash your feet, which sounds like what in the world does that have to do with anything? That's just a euphemism, okay? It's a euphemism for, hey, buddy, go home and enjoy a night with your wife, because he goes home and sleeps with Bathsheba, and that sort of eliminates any of the paternity questions, right, about, well, who's the father? Well, they did sleep together during the time about which she got pregnant, so who's going to think anything about it? So that's the way to cover up what's happened. Except Uriah, ironically, turns out to be a person of more character and higher integrity than David is. David was hoping, here's what David was hoping, He was hoping that Uriah would have turned out to be just like himself. He was hoping that Uriah would have gone home, he would have seen Bathsheba, and been filled with uncontrollable sexual desire. That's what he was hoping. He wanted Uriah to be just like him. And yet we see that he sleeps with the servants outside the palace because he says, Everybody in the military and the ark, the covenant symbol of God, is living in a tent out on the battlefield and you want me to go home and sleep with my wife? So Uriah here, remember, he's a Hittite. (laughs) He's he's not from the line of Abraham. He's not from the uh, Israelite people. He's a Gentile who's been grafted into the community of Israel and he here is showing far more loyalty to Yahweh and to the people of Israel than David is as the king. He's showing greater integrity and greater character than the king of God's people, who's supposed to be characterized by living by every word of the law, the Torah of God. David had hoped that he was going to be just like himself, but he wasn't. So David enacts another aspect of the plan. He says, okay, if that doesn't work, I'm just going to get him really drunk. I'm going to give him a lot to drink, and once his inhibitions get lowered, then maybe he's going to, you know, uh, feel a little bit more free to go home and maybe make decisions that he wouldn't make otherwise in his right mind. So he gets him drunk, but the same thing happens. He still sleeps outside the city gate and doesn't go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And at this point, David is like, okay, this has gone far enough. This has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with now. And so he enacts a plan. He organizes the murder of Uriah. He says to Joab, who's his military commander, he says, hey, Joab, what I need you to do is I need you to identify the place where the fighting is the fiercest, where he's gonna have the greatest chance of dying. I want you to put him in that place, and I'm not just gonna hope that he gets killed. What you're gonna do is you're gonna put him in that place, then you're gonna pull all the other troops back. He's gonna be left out there by himself, and he's gonna be killed by the enemy. And this is the plan that David And Acts here. And so you see that at this point, David is not just, this is not just David sort of scheming. David is now bringing other people, he's bringing other of of Uriah's friends, his military commanders, into this plan to have Uriah murdered to cover over his own sin. So this plan of cover up is not going the way that David wants. He has Uriah murdered. And this all begins with a spark of sexual desire inside of David's heart. That's where it begins. It all begins with a spark of sexual desire in his heart and it ends with the organized murder of Bathsheba's husband. So we see adultery, we see cover-up, and at this point it looks like David's getting away with it because Uriah is dead. David takes her to be his wife and there's not going to be any questions that anyone's going to ask. It looks as though David has gotten away with it, but we're told otherwise. The very last line of chapter 11 says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David's sin here in this moment was, it was covered up. It was concealed. It was hidden in many different ways. But what the text makes clear to us is that David's sin was not hidden from God. His sin was not hidden from God. God saw what David did. He saw what David did to Bathsheba. David sexually abused her. When the king sends messengers and says, the king would like your services, does a person in Bathsheba's situation have the opportunity to say, no thanks, I'd rather not. Of course she doesn't. And if she ran out of the palace screaming that she'd been abused, who would believe her? And even if they did believe her, what are they going to do about it? David is the most powerful person on the planet, and as you see here, he's got a good way of covering things up by having people murdered. So Bathsheba is in this situation of no doing by herself. She's abused, sexually abused. David forced himself upon her. She wasn't complicit in this. This wasn't a fling they had together. David forced himself on her. This was against her will. God saw what he did to her. God saw what he did to Uriah. He saw the way that David brought all of these other people into this murderous plan that David has to try and cover up his wickedness. The ways that he's using one sin to cover up another sin. God sees all of this. It was not hidden from him. And we see in chapter 12, if we were to read that chapter, we would see that God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David in his sin. Nathan comes and he confronts David and essentially what he does is he says there's going to be two major acts of judgment that are going to come on you. The first act of judgment is, he says, you have used the sword against Uriah. Therefore, the sword will never leave your own house. In other words, your family is going to, from this moment on, live in chaos and dysfunction. The same kind of selfishness, the same kind of sin, the same kind of wickedness that exists inside of you that you have done will be you, is going to be sown into that. That seed that's planted is going to grow and your family is going to bear the fruit of the decisions that you just made. And the other act of judgment that God brings is that the child that is born to David and Bathsheba will die. Verse fourteen: Because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. Verse eighteen: On the seventh day, the child died. Friends, David's sin is not hidden from God. And it comes at an astronomical cost. You see the, the wave of carnage, the collateral damage of the people in David's life because of his sin. David's sin was not hidden from God and it came at an unbelievable cost. And not only to David. One of the aspects of this passage that, that I don't know how else to say it other than it just it, it troubles me. Is that other people paid for David's sin? David's not the only one who pays for his sin here. Future generations will continue to pay for the sin that David has committed. And think about Bathsheba. Because of David's sin, because of his wickedness, because of his uncontrolled, unrestrained sexual desire, her husband is now dead. And because of his wickedness, she now holds and weeps over her lifeless child. Her baby dies because of someone else's sin. She bears the consequences. She lives with the scars of the wickedness and the sin that David had committed. David is not the only one who pays for his sin. But even in the midst of this mess, and it is a mess, is it not? In the midst of this mess, we see not only adultery, cover up, and judgment, but we also see grace. We see the grace of God given to David in this that God does not allow David's sin to remain hidden. God doesn't let his sin remain behind closed doors. God brings it out into the open. It's exposed, the light is shown on it. It's made public, it's made visible. And even more than that, once it's exposed and David confesses that sin, once he owns up to it, which we know he does because we have uh, Psalm 51, which is a psalm of David and his confession and repentance of the things that he's done in this chapter. We know that David has owned up to this sin, And God, we're told, forgives David. Even David, even this, even this kind of thing that David has done, the incredible amount of wickedness that exists inside of David and and the, the evil that he has done, even this, God can forgive So God's grace is shown to David in that he does not allow his sin to remain hid, and he brings it out in the light. David confesses it, and God forgives even someone like David who's done the kinds of things that he has done. But God's grace is also seen here to Bathsheba. God's grace is seen to her in that he replaces the son that was taken from her. In chapter 12, verse 24, the text says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. This is after their child dies. And he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, which is an interesting choice of name. Solomon is a word that's from the Hebrew root word shalom peace, wholeness, prosperity. So they named this child Solomon, and the text says that the Lord loved him. Yahweh loved this child. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. So this child who's given to replace the child that was taken from Bathsheba is given a name that if your Bible has footnotes like mine does, it says the word Jedidiah means loved by the Lord. So God himself gives a special nickname to this little baby that is given to replace her first child, who was killed, and the the nickname of the baby is Yahweh loves your child. Loved by Yahweh. This is the grace of God that is given to Bathsheba. And I think this passage, we look at this and we we see a, a picture of who God is, which is ultimately what we need to see is a clear picture of who he is, and what we see is this. He's a God who forgives, and he's a God who restores He's a God who forgives even someone like David, even the kinds of things that David has done that many of us may even want to look at and say, that seems, you, you've crossed the line, David. It seems there are things that we would see that would seem unforgivable to us, the worst of the worst, and yet even those sins, even those people who bring their guilt before God, who submit themselves to him and cast themselves on his mercy, he has an abundance of forgiveness, an abundance of grace, even for people like David. And we should say, even for people like us. Maybe our sin doesn't express itself in the exact same way that we see happening here with David. Maybe the sexual desire that lives inside of us, maybe the evil and the poison of sin that lives inside of us expresses itself in ways that are far more socially acceptable. But even people like us can be forgiven like David was forgiven. He's a God who forgives and he's a God who restores. Bathsheba doesn't get to experience the fullness of this. It doesn't take the pain away from her baby dying that she was given another baby. But what it does show us is that God delights to restore what was taken from her. And it's a small picture of that. And I think this is why why Matthew wants us to read about the birth of Jesus with this story in our minds. Because he wants us to see this is the kind of God we have. He's a God who forgives. He's a God who restores. The grace that God gave in this situation did not it didn't erase what happened. It didn't turn back the clock so that the events of chapter 11 just miraculously poof are just like gone. They, just, they never happened. The grace of God given here does not erase what happened. But what we see is this. In his grace, God takes the brokenness and the dysfunction of the situation and he makes it turn out for good. That's what he does. He takes the brokenness, the dysfunction. He takes all of the messiness and the ugliness of the situation and he makes it turn out for good. Even these circumstances, even circumstances like this with sexual abuse, even with circumstances like the organizing, the first degree murder of somebody and the death of a child, God takes even situations like this and he makes them turn out for good. the story of David and Bathsheba foreshadows something far greater and far better than even what they experienced in this passage. And that is because the story of Christmas and the story of the birth of Jesus shows us, gives us a, 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 a picture, a clear picture that God can take the brokenness and the dysfunction that we see and experience, and he can make it turn out for good. We see a little glimpse of foreshadowing of that in this passage that David and Bathsheba didn 't fully see or experience that here they didn 't get to see and experience what God ultimately did, but it was through this child that was given to her to replace the child that was taken from her. It was through those circumstances through that child that the deliverer would come that god 's messiah his rescuer would come who came to rescue us from precisely these kind of situations (laughs) to offer forgiveness and hope and healing and renewal and restoration specifically in situations like this. God used all of the, the brokenness and the trauma of that situation and he made it turn out for good. He sent his son who joined us in humanity, who took on human flesh, who experienced something that was infinitely worse than what Bathsheba even experienced. And please don't misunderstand me. That is not at all to downplay the significance of what she experienced. What she experienced was awful and horrific in every single way. She was abused. She was mistreated. And yet in the person of Jesus, what we see is that God himself was willing to take on human flesh and accompany us in all the brokenness of the world as we see and experience it. And in a way that Bathsheba would never understand, the sinless one, the one who for his entire life loved his heavenly father with his whole heart, mind, and strength, who loved his neighbor as himself, the one who did no wrong, who committed no sin, he experienced an even greater kind of abuse, an even greater kind of trauma and neglect. Jesus did that, and in suffering and dying for us, we see that that is the moment where we see that God can take the most horrific, seemingly meaningless, purposeless, awful circumstances, and he can make them turn out for our good. That's what he did for us in Jesus, And so that gives us hope then. We look at her situation and we say, okay, she never lived long enough to see the ways that God was, she didn't live long enough to see the ways that God was going to bring fruition out of the pain of her life. And yet if she could live long enough, she would have seen it. And her heart would have rejoiced to see the ways that God took all the brokenness that that she experienced, that was done to her, and she would see the way that God took that and made it turn out for good. I think we can take this passage and apply this in a couple different ways. There's maybe uh, three different kinds of people uh, who are here today, who are listening, who are watching this, who maybe um, maybe this will land in different ways for different people. One way this could land with us is, is like this. There may, be, there may be some of us here today who are dabbling in things. There may be some of us here who are who have lives with hidden sins that we're convinced doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody sees it. It's not a problem. And yet, if this passage would say anything, it's number one that God sees. And not in some like creepy elf on the shelf kind of a way, right? Not that. God sees. And also never underestimate the destructive power of the hidden sin in your life. You may think it's hidden. David thought his sin was hidden. And you see the wave, the wake of destruction that he left behind him. There may be some of us here today who are stuck in bondage to sin. Patterns of thought or patterns of behavior that we know are wrong, that we continually come and we confess before God and we say we're sorry and we feel like a failure every time we do it. And yet what this story shows us is that there is forgiveness. There is an unending well of forgiveness that can never run dry. It can never be exhausted. For those who continually bring their brokenness and their shame and their sin to Jesus and cast themselves on his mercy. There's hope and there's forgiveness And there's some of us here who are experiencing circumstances that we can't see how in the world this is ever going to turn out for good. There's circumstances that we just, we can't see, God, I don't understand why you're letting this happen to me. This is meaningless, it's pointless, it's purposeless. And you may feel that way. And what this story shows us is that David and Bathsheba, they never saw the final result. They never saw in full the fruitfulness of the things that they experienced. They never saw the the full fruitfulness of God's faithfulness and his grace to them. And we may never either. But as we face circumstances that are difficult, as we face circumstances and challenges that seem impossible, that seem hopeless, that seem purposeless, what we can come away with knowing is that we have a God who takes those circumstances and he will make them turn out for our good. And so in every circumstance, there's hope for us. And this is what we get to celebrate as we come to the communion table. As we do each Sunday, we get to come and we get to remember and celebrate that in the person of Jesus, God has, God has worked out our, our best interest in the most unexpected, painful way possible. He took the greatest act of cosmic injustice and abuse, which was the murder of the Son of God and he made that turn out for our good. And we get to remember, we get to celebrate that and so we get to come forward today and we get to physically with our bodies get out of our seat and come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and in doing so say, I receive it. We get to know that that is for us, for anyone who comes to him, who gives their trust and their allegiance, who will cast themselves on his mercy. There is forgiveness, there is grace, there is hope, there is restoration because he is a God of forgiveness and he is a God who restores. And so we can have hope in that. I'd like to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection and then we are going to uh, have a congregational confession this morning. We're going to uh, confess the words of Psalm 51 together uh, this morning, but I'd like to leave just a few moments of silent time for you to reflect and confess on your own. I invite you to confess the words of Psalm 51 with me. On each slide, there will be an indicator of who's supposed to read that. Some of them are just for me as the leader. Some of them are for all of us to join together. So let's confess this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen.